Good morning. My name is Tad Daniels. I've been at Northway for about 10 years, and uh, I serve in the preschool uh, ministry as well as worship production and uh, gospel community coach. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 21. I'll be reading verses 1 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah was conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased, because the boy and because of the slave woman Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulders along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes, and then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called out to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with the water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran And his mother took him a wife from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Great to see all of you. Uh, During my first year of college, my roommate was really into movies. Uh, He loved all kinds of movies, but was particularly fond of romantic comedies. One day, we were in conversation when the movie, When Harry Met Sally, was mentioned, and I uttered these fateful words, oh, I haven't seen it. He responded, 
with this. We're watching it tonight. Fast forward a few years later, and When Harry Met Sally became one of my favorite movies. In fact, Amy and I have been known to do the same thing as my roommate to unsuspecting friends who dare mention that they haven't seen this movie. But if you have seen it, you know that the story follows the relationship of Harry, played by Billy Crystal, and Sally, played by Meg Ryan. Harry and Sally are friends for years, but they always seem to miss each other. But eventually, their feelings for one another come to a head. Their true hearts are laid bare, but their story, at least for a time, does not look like it's going to receive that fairy tale ending. That is, until Harry does something unexpected. So Sally's at a New Year's Eve party with some of her friends, but she's lonely. And she's mad at Harry, but she's missing him at the same time. Harry is walking the streets of Manhattan alone, but then he breaks into this kind of determined grin. All of a sudden, he starts running. He's running to the party. He gets there, and Sally doesn't want to talk to him. But Harry says something so meaningful that she's left speechless. He tells her that he loves her, and then he says, when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to start right now. Way to go, Nora Ephron. That is a choice line. Harry realizes what Sally means to him, and he throws away everything else so that he can go and be with her. He will let nothing stand in the way of the promise of something worth giving his life to. That theme of casting away everything else in order to obtain the promise, there's something of that theme present in our text this morning. There is a promise that has come true, and it is one which must be guarded against every threat. As we look a little bit more closely at Genesis 21 this morning, there's two themes that we're going to discuss. The first is how this promise is fulfilled, how it's fulfilled. The second is how the promise is protected. But then we're going to do something a little bit unusual, at least for us. We're going to turn over to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament, Galatians 4, verses 22 through 31. So if you want to go ahead and put a marker there, we're going to come to that towards the end of our time this morning. But the reason we're going to look at that text is because it mentions in a very specific way Genesis 21 and helps us to understand how we would apply the meaning in our lives today as Christians. So we're going to be looking at these three things, how God's promise is fulfilled, how God's promise is protected, and how God's promise is applied. So first, how God's promise is fulfilled. You can probably remember times in your life where things happened by surprise. You have your plans, but the culmination of those plans is never guaranteed, and nor is it promised that what we plan, if it does come to pass, will happen the way that we expect it to. This is to be expected. Proverbs 16.9 tells us that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Yet when it comes to what God plans and what he purposes and the things that he promises, things happen exactly as they are predicted. This is the case with Genesis 21. Recall with me back to Genesis 18, 
how God visited Abraham and Sarah. And during his visit, God tells Abraham that in one year's time, he will return. And Sarah, Abraham's wife, shall have a son. So what we read in verse one of this passage, we need to understand it as the main point of the entire text. God does exactly what he said he would do. Verse one, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Now that word visited, it often refers in the Old Testament to the way that God intervenes in the life of his people in redemptive ways. He visits them. He comes to them in order to do something significant. It's the very same kind of visit that Joseph promises his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 24, which says this, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And in the same way, in Genesis 21, God visits Sarah according to his promise And in so doing, he causes her to conceive according to his promise. So we see in verse two that Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And lest we be in doubt as to the faithfulness of God in this event, notice this triple repetition in verses one and two. In verse one, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. In verse two, Sarah bore a son at the time of which God had spoken. The point in how God's promise is fulfilled is this. God did exactly as he said he would. He visited Sarah one year after the meeting of Genesis 18 and she conceived just as he promised. But here we also see a beautiful response of faith, first from Abraham and then from Sarah, beginning in verse three. And so on the one hand, let's look at the response of Abraham. You'll remember back in Genesis 17, how God promised Abraham that this day would come, that Sarah would bear him a child. But Abraham, when he heard that, he laughed. He laughed before God in light of the clear physical limitations given he and Sarah's age. But God promised that not only would he have a son by Sarah, that that son's name would be Isaac, which means laughter. Abraham laughed in unbelief, but his son would be called laughter as a display of God's faithfulness. And in Genesis 18, as we've already said, Sarah laughed in unbelief at the reiteration of God's promise. And she said, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? But here in these first few verses, we have a birth announcement of sorts. And what is the child's name? It's Isaac. Abraham called the name of his son Isaac, just as God commanded And as God commanded Abraham in Genesis 17, when he foretold that he would have a son named Isaac, Abraham circumcised him on the eighth day. And so that we would never forget that such an occasion came from the Lord's hand alone, verse five reminds us, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. But on the other hand, let's see as well the response of Sarah. Where Sarah laughed in unbelief in Genesis 18, now in verse six, we see her saying, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh 
over me. In Genesis 17, we saw one kind of laughter where Abraham laughed in unbelief. In Genesis 18, we see Sarah laugh, but it's a laugh of bitterness. And now here in Genesis 21, there is a laughter of joy. Sarah is experiencing the fulfillment of what we would read in Proverbs 13, verse 12, that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Sarah's laughter is the laughter of a heart whose longings have been heard by God, but it is also a laughter that overflows with redemption as good news reaches others. A child has been born upon whose shoulders God's promises rest. And so there is, of course, something beautiful about these first seven verses. God has done just as he promised. And the response of his people is one of faith, obedience, wonder, and delight. And though it's not the main point of our passage, we see in these events a kind of model for the way that we are to receive and accept God's plans for ourselves. This text shows us just how perfect God's plan is and how our needed response to his working in our lives is faith and obedience, which if we will allow those things to flourish will lead us to wonder and delight because we will see that at the end of it, we would never say that what God's plan was, was anything less than the perfect provision we needed. And so God's promise is fulfilled by his own working, according to his word and in his perfect timing. And so as we look at verses eight through 21, we want to see then how God's promise is protected. And so we talked earlier about how sometimes things happen in our life by surprise. But there are other times as well where we are faced with a path that we may wish to avoid, yet God beckons us to accept. And this is true of what's happening beginning in verse 8 and following. In verse 8, Isaac is growing and the time comes for him to be weaned. And so Abraham holds a feast to celebrate this milestone. But in verse 9, we see that at the feast, Ishmael, his older half-brother, who is only named as the son of Hagar the Egyptian in this passage, he is found laughing at Isaac. But Ishmael's laughter was not the same kind of laughter that is seen in verse 6. It was not a laughing over one in a spirit of wonder or of gratitude. Rather, it was a mocking, jeering kind of laughter. Ishmael is sneering at his little brother, and Sarah sees it. Now, perhaps if you have children, you have seen something like this in your own life with your, with your child. Another child mocks your child, and you see it. And honestly, it doesn't matter what the actual threat level is. Something primal shows up in the way that you respond. Some months ago, I was at a playground with my children. And I looked over and saw one of my children, and it appeared that another child was slapping him on the face. So what do you think I did? Everything in me, the deepest dad voice Like just practicing for when my daughter's in high school. Like I let him know that what he was doing was wrong. And he stopped, but it turns out that he actually wasn't hitting 
my son. And so after some apologies to that young man, I tried to regain any sense of dignity that I had less. (laughs) But we understand. We've been there. And so for Sarah, she sees this, and there's two things that are happening. The first is that more natural inclination. She sees Ishmael, who is not her child, and he would have been somewhere in the age of like 13 to 17 at the time, and he is mocking her toddler son. And she reacts the way that any mother would. The second thing that's going on, though, shows up in verse 10, where she tells Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. So regardless of the actual physical threat that Ishmael poses in this scene, Sarah recognizes a deeper spiritual implication. If Isaac is to be the child through whom God's promise to bless all nations would be proven true, a decision must be made. Ishmael's presence was incompatible with Isaac's inheritance. And so she tells Abraham that Hagar and Ishmael must leave. But just as we would expect Sarah's response at the mistreatment of her child to be what it was, so too should we be unsurprised at Abraham's response. Because we see in verse 11 what he does. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. And so, of course, Abraham is upset. This is his son. That term displeasing could also be translated more literally as it was evil to Abraham. He cannot reconcile how Sarah could tell him to cast away Hagar and Ishmael. And it might seem that Sarah was simply repeating the kind of behavior she exhibited in Genesis 16 when her mistreatment of Hagar prompted her to flee, but that isn't the case. Verse 12 shows us that God will now speak to Abraham. And he affirms Sarah's decision. And he tells Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and the slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring come. In other words, God is telling Abraham, Abraham, don't see this as evil, but as part of my plan. What Sarah is doing is necessary because it is Isaac upon whom my promise rests. There is an immensely important theological point for us here which is this, that God will let nothing stand in the way of his redemptive purposes. But those purposes will confront our human ways of seeing and perceiving. There's going to be some point in your life, if it hasn't happened already, where you are going to be faced with a choice. God will beckon you towards something that brings you into greater trust, greater dependency, greater reliance upon him. But in order to do that, by necessity, something else must be lost. The way that we trust in other things, the way that we seek independence from God, the way that we rely upon ourselves, all of these things must be forsaken. Just as Ishmael's presence was incompatible with Isaac's inheritance, so too is trust in God's purpose and reliance on our own abilities incompatible realities. They cannot coexist. And when that choice happens, it will hurt. 
and we will struggle to understand it. This is sometimes because God calls us not to forsake things that are clearly opposed to his purposes, though he of course calls us to that, but that as Christians, we will face choices in our lives between two plausible realities. It may be the choice between something seemingly good, but of something God has not ordained. And we will be asked to choose what God has purposed. And so we will then look at it and we, all, we won't always know what to do. But we can ask, Lord, help me to follow you towards what will lead to greater Christ-likeness. And we'll know that we're on the right track when what we seem to say no to are those things that are most keen to keep us in places of comfort and of control and of autonomy. Abraham is faced with such a choice. Will he accept God's plan even though pain would come? Or will he seek to maintain maintain the status quo? What will he do? He needs God's assurance that it will be all right, that the pain he will experience will not be in vain. And this is the assurance that he receives in verse 13, where God says, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Ishmael will be cared for. His story will end with preservation. And so we see in verse 14, Abraham do the unthinkable to say goodbye to his teenage son along with Hagar as they depart to wander in the south in the wilderness of Beersheba. The last paragraph of this passage is notable for a couple of reasons. One is an apparent interpretive difficulty that has to do with Ishmael's age. This has led some to question the integrity of this passage, but we'll see that to acknowledge a young teenage Ishmael isn't quite as difficult as we might imagine. And so maybe you've noticed the language in your translation will say child or boy. And we might think, is, what's the deal? Ishmael's supposed to be a teenager, but here we see him described maybe as somebody younger. But this word, child, is a word that could also just simply be translated youth or lad. We don't say lad in our country, but you get what I mean. The other thing for us to note too is that it is not at all limited to a young child to suffer the threat of death because of heat exhaustion or thirst. I don't know if you've been in a desert without water, but I know you have been in Texas in the summer. And if you don't stay hydrated, bad things can happen. And so we see here a fairly normal set of experiences. They wander in the desert, they run out of water and they prepare to die. But as Hagar cries out to the Lord and as Ishmael calls out to the Lord, God delivers them even though Ishmael is not in the line of salvation. And even though God affirms Sarah's expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael, God still provides for them. He shows them a well and they are able to satisfy their thirst and to survive. And so verse 20 tells us God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt, which makes sense, remembering that Hagar was from Egypt herself. And so in this text, we see how God's promise is fulfilled through the birth of Isaac and how God's promise is protected through the departure of Ishmael. 
Now what I wanna do is turn over to Galatians 4 so that we can see how to read this text in light of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to learn how God's promise may be applied. And so turn over there, Galatians 4, verses 22 through 31. This passage directly references Genesis 21 through what's known as an allegory. An allegory is a rhetorical device where a story is referenced in order to bring out some additional meaning for modern application. Paul is going to use the story of Isaac's birth and of Hagar and Ishmael's dismissal as an allegory for how we understand our relationship to the Mosaic law and the truth of the gospel of Jesus. First, let's think a little bit about the background of Galatians though. Galatians is the oldest book in the New Testament. It was a letter written in the late 40s AD to a group of churches in Asia Minor in a region known as Galatia. These churches were comprised of Gentile believers and they were converted out of the pagan systems of belief that were common both to the time and to the region. After the gospel came to the region of Galatia, these new believers, however, began to field overtures from a group of people known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jewish background Christians, but in particular, they believed that those who converted to Christianity were still obliged to fulfill the demands of the Mosaic law as a condition of their relationship to God through Christ. What they attempted to do was to compel these Gentile converts to live as Jews, even though the gospel that these Galatians heard was of salvation by grace through faith on the basis of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, writes to the Galatian churches to tell them that if they attempt to adopt the commands of the Mosaic law, they are denying the grace of Jesus. It's not that the law was bad, but that its purpose was being misunderstood. The Mosaic law was not meant to serve as an eternal covenant governing God's relationship with his people, but rather a temporary system until the promised offspring of Abraham would come, that ultimate descendant of Isaac, Jesus Christ, the one who would usher in the grace of salvation for all who believe. The Judaizers had the order backwards. They missed it. And instead of seeing the gospel being preached to Abraham and then fulfilled in Christ, they sought to compel the Galatians to submit to the law instead. And so it's about two-thirds of the way through the argument that Paul makes in the book of Galatians when he references the story of Isaac and Ishmael and of Sarah and Hagar. Now, here's what I want you to know. Paul makes an allegory. You should not do that. Paul writes inspired scripture, inspired by God. It is God's way for us to understand a deeper spiritual meaning of this passage, but these things don't happen very often in the New Testament. And so we need to be careful not to avoid, not to fall into the same trap and say, oh, everything in the Old Testament has some New Testament meaning. The church fathers, after the generation of the apostles, they did this with some frequency, but they fell into what's known as eisegesis or reading meaning into the text that may not originally have been purposed to be there. Paul's allegory, by contrast, is found in the inspired pages of the Bible. 
which means we can affirm his way of viewing this story as God's way of applying it in our life today. So Genesis 21 has its, its historical meaning to be sure, but it also carries an additional gospel significance in light of Galatians 4. Okay, so that's a big intro. What does he actually say in Galatians 4? Let's look at it. Starting in verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according, was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, and he quotes here from Isaiah 54, he says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Think about what he's saying. He's saying to the Galatians, you, Galatian believers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So what is Paul saying? Paul is making the point that the story of Isaac's birth and of Ishmael's departure corresponds to the tension that the Galatians were experiencing. The tension between their hope in the message of salvation in Christ and the pressure that they were facing to adopt the law. Ishmael could not remain for Isaac to become the true heir. And in the same way, now that Christ has come, the law, must be viewed differently. Hagar then and her offspring represent the old covenant while Sarah and hers the new. The old must give way to the prominence of the new for the promise to truly be fulfilled. But what does this mean for us in light of the gospel? Notice again what he says in verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You who are in this room, who've trusted in Christ, who have been saved by grace through faith, you are children of promise. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate offspring promised through the covenant God made with Abraham, we who believe in him are made co-heirs, and we have become children of promise just as Isaac was. But as with the experience of Ishmael's mocking, his sneering of Isaac, those who are believers in Christ, whether it was in Galatia or in the present day, we are always facing threats to the full acceptance of the gospel. There are barriers 
that would keep you and I from living in light of the grace of Jesus, which is what Paul means in verse 29 when he says that, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Now, you may not be experiencing the kind of pressure that came from the Judaizers in Galatia, but we are always living in the tension of going the way of the law or living in light of our calling in Christ. And so this connects to Genesis 21 because look at verse 30 in Galatians 4. He quotes Genesis 21 and says, cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And what Paul is teaching us to say is that adherence to the law as a means of righteousness cannot coexist with the gospel of grace. Okay, so admittedly, this is a bit theological, but there is a significant takeaway that I want us to see. In Genesis 21, the conflict is between Isaac as the heir of promise and Ishmael as the threat to that promise. In Galatians 4, Paul uses the story allegorically to make sense of the conflict between the Galatians and the Judaizers. And for us today, we must see these two texts as representative of the basic tension that we experience between the supremacy of Christ's work for us and the pull of anything, whether our own righteousness or some other means that would diminish the work of the gospel in the way that we understand our relationship to God. And so here's a basic way for us to see it. Where is there in your life right now something that seems more pressing to you or more important to you than the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ? One way for us to consider how this might be true is by thinking about what feels most important to us. And so ask yourself, what is taking up the most space in your mind right now? Where do your thoughts turn when there's nothing else happening in your day? What do you find yourself most preoccupied by, most concerned with, or conversely, most excited about? Now, of course, it doesn't mean that those things by themselves indicate a problem, but it can mean that. We can be so quick to fill our days with things that we think please the heart of God, all the while seeking to build atop some foundation that is different than the gospel of grace. If the way that you see your relationship with God is built upon anything except Jesus' work for you, if there's any little bit of it that represents your contribution, if you feel guilty when you don't do something, but the thing that you think you should do is an expectation created in your own mind, that's a clue that something is amiss in the way that you're seeing the truth of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for sinners, that he was resurrected from the dead, and that he invites everyone everywhere to come to him and to find rest for their souls. The gospel is not the contribution that we make to the grace of God. Because as soon as we do that, we have denied the truth of Jesus' work and replaced it with something else. 
And so it may not be that the object of your attention is not something inherently evil, but rather something that is taken up preeminence in your heart. And I would just remind us what we said earlier. God will let nothing stand in the way of his redemptive purposes, and those purposes will confront our human ways of seeing and perceiving. Because God loves you, he doesn't want you to be troubled by the threats of competing promises or false foundations. He wants you to be free of them, but those things may come at a cost. And while it may feel uncomfortable at first, it is always for our good. So as Christians, we have a choice. Just like the Galatians did in the first century, just like Sarah and Abraham had 2,000 years before, will we hold Christ and his work as utmost in our hearts or will something else lay claim to our inheritance? We are confronted with that choice at our conversion but you will also be confronted in a thousand ways with the same decision throughout your life as a believer. So my question for us is this, how is God leading us to that choice today as we reflect upon the truth of his word? How is he leading us to consider that reality today of where we might have elevated something else and instead forsaken the promise of what is actually worth holding on to? If you're feeling some conviction as you think about this, if you're realizing that you may have neglected the admonition of Proverbs 4.23, which says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life, then my encouragement to you is to take those things to the Lord in a spirit of confession and of repentance. He wants nothing more than to make true of what we mentioned at the beginning of our time that nothing would stand in the way of the promise of something worth giving our lives to. So we are to cast away then what would keep us from Jesus, for it is with him that true freedom, joy, and life are to be found. And here's what's beautiful about this. God delights in humble hearts that seek him in light of the good news of Jesus. He's not ever going to turn you away. He will never condemn you for your struggles. In fact, he will only strengthen, uphold, and help you as you seek him above every other thing that may be competing for your heart's affection. And so we've seen in this passage today how God's promise is fulfilled We've seen how God's promise is protected. We looked at Galatians 4 and saw how God's promise may be applied. And so as we go to the Lord in prayer and prepare to come to his table, let's ask for his help to live in light of the gospel as we enter back into life this week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. And how there is nothing that is worth more than what you have provided through Christ. Lord, may it not be said of our church that we would have elevated something else apart from you, that we would have had any other goal except to cherish you and exalt your name, to celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ and to invite others to believe. And even as individuals, Lord, would you help us where you may be calling us to forsake even something good if it stands in place of you. 
that we would not be afraid to accept hard realities that come with it, but that we would say, no matter the cost, it was worth it because of what we gained. Help us to this end, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.